Now I'd like to have just a, a real short prayer here before we begin our message for this morning. So I invite you to bow your heads with me again. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this Holy Sabbath day. And I ask humbly, Lord, that you give of the Spirit. Um, give me the words to speak here this morning. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, armor, that powered armor that you provide for us. And we want to, we want to understand it. And, and I want to be able to present it in such a way that, that uh, the congregation understands it and that we will put on this whole armor, as Paul says, that we may uh, have victory over the devil. Thank you so much, Lord, for hearing this prayer. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, like I said, friends, um, I've entitled this particular message, Powered Armor. We're continuing in our series of uh, This Is My Body, um, and in particular, the, the section of that series, On the March. This is the the service of the church. What is the function of an organized church? What are they to do? And last time we were together, I talked about code talkers. We talked about, in essence, principles of prayer. And here's another a part of being a soldier for Jesus is to put on the armor that God has provided. Have you ever heard of what is called a powered exoskeleton? <laughs> well, a powered exoskeleton, it's also known as or can be called powered armor. It's a mobile machine consisting primarily of an outer framework that's worn by a person and powered by a system of motors or hydraulics that delivers at least part of the energy for, let's say, somebody's limb, to have limb movement. And when I say a powered exoskeleton, think of that fictional... What, what might come to mind, the fictional uh, uh, comic book Iron Man. You know he puts on that suit. He has a powered suit that he gets into. Well, you've seen pictures of Iron Man. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's, that's kind of what they're heading towards. The, the main function of a powered exoskeleton is to assist the wearer by boosting their strength and boosting their endurance. Um, they're commonly designed for military use to help soldiers carry heavy loads both in combat and out of combat. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was doing some research on this and, and they have one that they're, they're dealing with that's, that's a, a prototype built by Lockheed Martin. And essentially what they're... they're their goal is to produce this powered armor to that it it gives the person 25 times the strength. Well, that's not correct either. How do I put it? If you... Let me put it this way. Picking up 25 pounds with this exoskeleton would be like a normal person picking up one pound. How's that? So, you know... That's what they're working towards. And this prototype that Lockheed Martin is working on, it's meant for military use. They've been constructed, but they haven't been deployed in the field yet because they have, they have various uh, problems that they have to solve. But the most daunting problem that they have to solve is the creation of a compact power supply that is powerful enough to allow 
the skeleton to operate for extended periods of time without being plugged into some external power. Where right now the prototypes, they, they have them plugged into power. So they're trying to, to get a small battery that has enough power that they could go wireless, <laughs> in essence. But the military would have other uses if, if this were solved. They would have combat uses. Wouldn't you? I mean, can't you see that? That's, you know that's the goal of it, to be able to use this um, in combat. And can you imagine the advantage of having such armor, such powered armor, in combat? Well, I want you to think about that, and I want you to consider this. God has provided powered armor for His people, and it's to aid them in their fight against the enemy of souls. You realize that? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about this powered armor with you uh, at this time. You know, when you, you pick up the Bible and you begin reading it, especially a lot of times in the Old Testament, but you can see it throughout. I mean, we read in Revelation that there was war in heaven. Chapter 12 tells us that, right? But you see, throughout the Bible, the book is depicting countless battles. From Genesis like I said, to Revelation, you see that there are both physical and spiritual wars that are raging. And physical wars have dominated history from the time, oh, Cain killed his brother Abel right down to today. You know, I think I read an article not too long ago, I think Susan sent me one, said that there are only 11 countries in the entire world right now that are not in any kind of conflict. Only 11. <coughs> And that shouldn't surprise us, really. You know, Jesus predicted this would be the case. We read in Matthew chapter 24, you know, that chapter where he talks about the end of the, the age. He says, And ye shall hear of rumors and wars. We're in verse 6. And ye shall hear of rumors, uh, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye not be troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Now, we know that Jesus was telling about that time before the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's also talking about the end time, our time. And we see a number of these things, don't we? However, the primary focus of the scriptures is the ongoing battle between Christ and Satan. That's what it's about. It's about describing to us the Savior of the world, His ministry, and this great controversy dealing with His followers and those who follow Satan. That's what the, the, the Bible is all about. That's the focus. That's the primary focus. And like I said, we're told in Revelation that what began as a war in heaven is soon going to end in a battle known as and is described as Armageddon. And in this conflict between the forces of good and the powers of evil, light or truth is under constant attack from deception and the powers of darkness, isn't it? And whether we like it or not, every single one of us is involved, beloved. Every single one of us. You can't run. You can't hide. There's no neutral ground. The spiritual war is not... Well, really, it's not over some planet or piece of ground, although the devil, he wants, he wants 
to have the earth. But the reason he wants is to have the earth is because he wants to have control of each human heart and mind. And that's really what this battle, this spiritual war is over. You see, both Jesus and the devil are supremely interested in winning possession of our minds and our hearts. The devil wants to, to be worshipped. He wants to be God. That's what started this whole thing. And so for this reason, Christians are called to be more than spectators. They're called to be more than mediators in this great controversy. So we, we have got to realize, beloved, that we must be committed front line in the trenches, warriors for our Master Jesus Christ. We've got to be committed. We've got to be that army, as the Bible describes, that is terrible with banners. And that banner is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That banner is the three angels' message in the Sabbath truth. All of the literal battles that you find in the Bible, you know, from, let's say... Gideon's conflict with the Midianites to uh, David's defeat of Goliath. All of those, they, they can serve to teach us how we might experience victory in spiritual battles. Because, you know, these battles are that we have mainly, because they're of a spiritual nature, the weapons we use are also going to be spiritual weapons. And the great thing about it is that 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 powered armor that we so need to have victory is provided for us in this spiritual warfare. It's provided. And it is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual war, although there are physical aspects to it. This is why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 and verse 12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? He says, we wrestle against principalities. We wrestle against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we need help. They're powerful. Our enemy is powerful. More powerful than any one of us. More powerful than us united. If we don't have Christ <laughs> and we don't put on the armor that He provides, this powered armor, we will not have victory. We wrestle against a mighty foe, beloved. I want to share this with you. It's from In Heavenly Places, page 253. We do not understand, as we should the great conflict going on between invisible agencies, the controversy between loyal and disloyal angels. She's saying, we don't understand as we should. Most of the spiritual battle, matter-of-factly, as she says, is invisible to us. We see its effects, but we don't actually see the agencies involved, as she says. They're invisible, invisible agencies. Now notice what else she says. She says, over every man, that means every person, that's mankind, over every man 
good and evil angels strive. This is no make-believe conflict. It is not mimic battles in which we are engaged. We have to meet most powerful adversaries and it rests with us to determine which shall win. Isn't that incredible? We determine. It rests with us. We determine which side's going to win. We're involved, you see. And although our our armor and, and weapons are spiritual, like I said, it, it doesn't mean that they're unreal. It doesn't mean that they're ineffective. That, As she had pointed out, it's not imaginary. This isn't an imaginary conflict. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we have effective, real armor and weapons to use in this spiritual war. And Paul also makes it clear that the Christian's commitment to his cause and His commander, Jesus Christ, should be as real as for any earthly soldier. And his earthly commander. 2 Timothy, verse 2, Paul lays this out. Verse 3, he says, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Don't get entangled with this world and not fulfill your duty as a soldier who was chosen by Jesus to be a soldier for Jesus. Remember, many are called, but few are chosen. So I did a a study. I did a search, and you know, in the scriptures, uh, for what the scriptures had to say about armor. And really, <laughs> it begins to look a little bit bleak because, for example, Saul's armor did not fit David. Remember, is all too big and bulky, and and Goliath's armor was useless against David's stone, wasn't it? also discovered that when a, a stray arrow found a crack in Ahab's armor, that wicked king died. So you start seeing some examples and you start thinking about this and you go, boy, it doesn't sound like armor does much good. <laughs> but then I realized, and, and we must realize, that we're not called to wear the faulty physical armor of Saul or Ahab or Goliath. Rather, we must put on the unfailing armor of God. And that's what Paul's talking about. In fact, at the very moment that Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians here, he probably was chained to a soldier who was wearing the armor of the Roman Empire. And I think that's what he used as examples for us here in, in, to the Ephesians. 
So he could see firsthand how frail were the defenses of man against the prince of darkness. And I believe that's why he twice emphasized the armor of God very strongly. He was emphasizing it. It's also clear that Paul was expanding on the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 59 verse 17, Isaiah said, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And so it isn't too hard, friends, to see that we're to wear the armor of God and not necessarily the armor of man, right? But we must be careful not to miss the that double admonition to wear all of the articles God provides. Paul, he, he's emphasizing this. He says in Ephesians 6 verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. That was our scripture reading for today. And if you go two more verses, verse 13, he says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. We'll get to it. And as I mentioned before, I said, I think, I think that this is where many of us fail in our daily battles. We take some of the armor, but forget one or two of the primary items, and, and, and friends, we pay an eternal price if we continue to neglect to wear all our battle armor, that whole armor. You know, a Christian is vulnerable at many spots, and often that particular characteristic that he thinks he's strongest in turns out under temptation to actually be his weakest. We have a tendency to do that. You know, remember, a chain is no stronger than its weakest link, right? So, a Christian is no stronger than his weakest element of character. And that's where the devil is going to attack. Because he's proven through time. He's done it over and over. He, he knows that's a, the weakness. That's the weak spot. So in view of the variety of foes that we must uh, meet and the various weaknesses of our flesh, I'll tell you, friends, nothing less than the entire armor is going to help us. <laughs> Don't just use part of it. And so... We're going to get into some specifics then. You know, you'll notice in his letter to the Ephesian church that the, the apostle, that Paul lists a total of six implements of earthly armor. And then what he does is he attaches a spiritual association to each one of these. He also adds a, a seventh, well I say a seventh powerful spiritual weapon in uh, conclusion of his example. So let's go to Ephesians 6 and we'll begin with verse 13. And we'll read this through and then we'll, we'll break, it up, break it up a bit. Ephesians 6 verse 13. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having your what? Loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness, that's what Isaiah talked about, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith 
wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation. Again, I'm probably referring back to Isaiah. And the sword of the Spirit, he says, which is the word of God. Praying always, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So Paul says to put on the whole armor of God and then he lays out the implements of that armor. And so let's consider these articles of defense. We're going to look at them one by one and let's see what we can learn. Um, Paul begins by saying, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, you'll notice something about this. First of all, this is the first piece of armor that the Christian is to wear. This is the first piece of armor that Paul lays out to us. In Bible times, this was called the cingulum or belt. It was a soldier's badge of office, essentially. It also held together the soldier's clothing, which might otherwise hamper his movements while marching or engaging in combat. So he had this cingulum or this belt, and it was girt about him, about his loins. And the spiritual significance is that Bible truth, friends, is our badge of office. You know, they could tell by the particular cingulum that the Roman soldier was wearing what particular office he had in the army. Because upon that belt was placed certain items. And so not only could a soldier tell by particular uh, Parts, other parts of his uniform, in essence, but upon the belt. The spiritual significance of it, again, is our badge of office. God wants us to wear it. He wants us to have it wrapped about us. That's the truth. And not only does the belt hold everything in place, but it also serves to carry the sheath that holds the sword of the Spirit for quick access. I mean, kind of think of it that way. Um, you know, some people, some people have the sword of God's Word, but without the belt of truth, they, they come to reckless conclusions or fanatical ideas. Oh, they, they've got the, the sword, but they don't have the belt of truth that goes with it. Without a belt, your clothes may fall off. (laughs) And many confused Christians have fled naked and ashamed when challenged by the enemy because they didn't secure, have that secured belt of truth. The great deception is, friends, is believing you have the belt of truth and are clothed when spiritually you don't and you're actually naked. And I'm talking spiritually. Remember, Christ warned the church of Laodicea that they were really naked when they believed that they were not. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And then, 
Jesus gives us counsel. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold dried in the fire that thou mayst be rich and white raiment that thou mayst be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. So he's saying, you need to have a belt of truth. goes around this raiment so that you won't be naked. Then he says, and anoint thine eyes with eyes have that thou mayest see. Now the white raiment there being described in Revelation uh, 3 is, well you can understand that as representative of Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. I think that this, um, this figure that Jesus used, it must have had special significance for the Christians there at Laodicea because, you know, their city was famous, actually, for its black woolen cloth. And here Jesus is giving a message to the church at Laodicea to have white raiment. I find that interesting. And, and also, friends, these things that Jesus offers, they're not, they're not without price because He says you need to buy it. Yet, salvation is always free. Isn't that interesting? And so what is the cost? He says buy. What, what, what does he mean by that? What is the cost? We must give up our old way of life. That's the cost. If we truly want to be rich, if we really want to be healed, if we really want to be clothed by Jesus, we need to give up our old way of life and give our life entirely to Him. That belt of truth. Never forget that wearing the belt of, belt of truth means wearing Christ. For He is, as John says in John fourteen six, the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. You've put on that robe of righteousness. You've put on that belt of truth. Jesus said in John 8.32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Are you wearing the belt of truth today, friends? Have you been deceived and think you're wearing the belt of truth where actually you're not and you're naked? How do you know if you're wearing the belt of truth? By God's Word. Everything. But thus saith the Lord, friends. Don't add to God's Word. Remember Revelation. There's a curse to adding to or taking away from God's Word. That's what fanaticism really is. It's an adding to or taking away from God's Word. Believing man over God. That's fanaticism. Let's test everything out with a thus saith the Lord. Especially doctrines. Amen? The next piece of armor Paul mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, I think he was referring back um, to um, Isaiah there. Okay, sorry about that. The breastplate protected the front torso. 
and it protected all the vital organs, you know, from in, during combat for, from a mortal wound. The breastplate could be composed of, um, if you go back in history, a solid piece of metal, uh, or it could contain numerous small pieces that were sewn to cloth or leather and overlapped, kind of like a, the scales of a fish. I think we kind of seen them back during the, the Dark Ages, you know, the knights, they wore things such as this as that. Uh, I think the Romans though, they still they had those things. And these scales, you know, they could number as many as seven hundred to a thousand per coat that was worn. And when the sun shone directly on the armor, can you imagine how hot that would be? Have you ever touched metal? Um, no 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 take this. Have you ever touched metal that had been in the sun? Pretty hot. You know, can you imagine wearing... Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you imagine wearing metal and being out in combat even? Or not even in combat, but being out in the sun? It'd become very hot. So to avoid being burnt or even to avoid being pinched by the, the moving metal plates, the soldiers always wore a sturdy robe under the armor. Now, we can conclude then that the wearing of the breastplate of righteousness is always in partnership with the robe of Jesus' righteousness. In Job 29 verse 14 he says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Then we can get an example of this and we look back at the Old Testament sanctuary services. When we consider that, we see that the high priest wore he wore a golden breastplate and he wore it over his linen robe. And the breastplate was set you know, with 12 precious stones that, that in, uh, were inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that represented that they were near the heart, didn't it? In Exodus 28 verse 29 says, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. Well, friends, this is, this is a very remarkable and an incredible a symbol for us. The only way we can experience victory in battle against the devil is through confidence that Jesus has us close to his heart and that His righteousness covers our hearts and we are forgiven. Very symbolic. Remarkable. When considering the breastplate, it's interesting to note that it covered the front of the person. It offered very little protection to the person's back. In other words, soldiers weren't to turn their backs toward the enemy and run away. They weren't to retreat. They were to stand their ground, facing the enemy, fully armored. So Christian soldiers, friends, should stand firm and never surrender any ground to the devil. Amen? I say, let the devil run and retreat from your steadfast loyalty to Christ. As James says, James 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the first thing we have to do. Submit ourselves to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the promise. 
That's the power of God, friends. But you've got to have that whole armor on. You've got to face the devil. You've got to stand for the truth. Submit yourself to God. And you've got to resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. The third piece of armor that Paul mentions is footwear. He says, Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's very interesting. Remember, Paul's writing this, and probably he was there in prison, chained to Roman soldiers at this particular time that he penned this letter to the Ephesians. So he's using them as an example here. And so we look back at the these Roman soldiers and look at their armament and learn something from them. Boots worn by Roman soldiers, they were strong. They were well ventilated with what they had. They had patterns of iron, what they called hobnails that were especially designed to take weight and withstand miles of marching because they marched everywhere. They, they built most of the roads throughout Europe. Now in the Bible, the foot is a symbol for the direction or the walk of a person's life. Have you come to that conclusion? The gospel, in this instance, is not so much the gospel to be proclaimed, but the gospel that has found a home in your heart. The gospel of peace he's talking about. It is, actually, it's a beautiful and encouraging thought that the warrior, the Christian warrior in the midst of spiritual conflict can stand firm for he has peace with God. That's what Paul's talking about. You're in your walk but your feet are shod with the gospel of peace. You have peace with God because through His grace you're keeping the commandments. You're winning the battles. So you have peace with God. And having our feet shod with the the preparation of the gospel peace gives us good footing that can prevent backsliding. See, And as we become involved in spreading the good news, it will strengthen us and it will also strengthen others against the enemy's attack. Look at Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good things, that publisheth salvation. He's saying how beautiful is it. So we can have this effect on others, we have the peace of God and we can spread that peace of the gospel. Years and years ago, I used to be a big hockey fan before I became a Christian. And I'd often go with my friends to, to Indianapolis. They have a farm team down there. And at the time, they were called the Indianapolis Checkers. And we, his, a real close friend of mine, his cousin had season tickets and always had extra tickets, and so we would go down. Usually on the weekends, we'd be working during the week or in school. But at a hockey game, it's inevitable that a fight will break out because it's a very physical game. And I saw my share of fights, and I always found it amusing at that time to watch these men try to fight each other while wearing ice skates. 
So, you see, friends, having good footing in a fight is essential for victory. Otherwise, we're prone to slide all over the place. Another thing that we need to realize is that we must also keep our gospel footwear on our feet. I read a story one time uh, years ago about a boy who was hiking in some blistering hot desert mountains when he came upon a large, fast-moving creek. And you know what he did? Well, it was hot out, so he took a drink of that, you know, have you ever seen mountain water? It's usually pretty clear. It's yeah, And so he took a drink, but then he took his boots and his socks off to keep from getting them wet as he crossed the creek. Well, what do you think happened? Despite all his efforts, he lost his footing and slipped on a slimy rock. You know, if you've ever gone through the creeks, we do sometimes, and we have what I call creek shoes. They're like an old pair of tennis shoes or something, you know, that I'll put on. But you, you'll hit a slip, those slimy rocks. And then he lost both his new boots, his good boots, and his socks into that water. And they were gone. And as I read that story, you know, he described the agony of hiking barefoot for miles on burning hot rocks through cactus line trails. And I'm going to tell you, friends, the lesson is that you don't want to be caught without your gospel footwear while you're journeying through this wilderness of temptation and sin. Don't remove your gospel shoes for any reason. You've got to keep them on. You'll have peace with God. The fourth piece of armor that Paul mentions is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. The warrior's shield, that Roman warrior, his shield was his first line of defense. They were usually made of wood or, or sometimes bronze, sometimes iron, and most were big enough to protect the whole body when the soldier was crouching down under a barrage of arrows. Faith in Christ's blood, friends, is our first defense against the great accuser. Jesus is our shield. He's our advocate. But this takes faith, doesn't it? We must first believe there is a God, and then we must believe in God. Amen? I mean, our enemy is constantly firing volley after volley of those flaming arrows of temptation at us. And the purpose for this shield of faith was to deflect that, those fiery darts, as Paul says, those fiery darts of the enemy, prevent them from ever making contact. I'll tell you this, in this spiritual warfare, many Christians fall and they fail to overcome evil because they wait until they're immersed in the fires of temptation before making ever, any effort to resist it. And I'll tell you, at that point, a lot of times it's too late. Because once you get passions stirred up, it's very hard to get control of them again. So as soon as you recognize a fiery dart of temptation sailing toward you, there's no time to lose, friends. Hold up that shield of faith. Do everything in your power to keep as much distance as possible between you and the temptation. You know, I wonder if we 
yield without a fight, are we in reality inviting temptation? Something to think about. The soldier's shield was not held loosely either in the soldier's hand. Usually it was strapped to his forearm so he could resist those blows of the enemy, you know, in their sword and and mace and whatever they may have without fear of dropping that shield. What can we learn from this? Well, we can't afford to have a flimsy faith, can we? Well, in the heat of a, a spiritual battle, we need to have that strong faith strapped to us in essence, right? In Matthew 11 and 7, Jesus asked the people concerning John the Baptist, He said, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What did he mean by this? How would you describe, in reading about John the Baptist, how would you describe John's character? Did he waffle or shake like a reed in the wind or was he of strong faith? Christians must develop a faith like that of John, friends. The shields of old, they were also varied in their designs. Most were marked with the insignia or name of the king to help the soldiers avoid fighting their own comrades in the confusion of battle. You know, the same thing happens today. Well, look back at World War II or any war basically the United States is in. How do you know that this armor, not so much today because they're all camouflaged, but how did you know which armor was the United States? How would you know that uh, a tank was was a United States tank? It had a star on it, didn't it? A white star. The Russians, they, they had a red star. And so these, these shields, they had insignias on them. So you wouldn't get confused. And, and, and usually it was an insignia. A lot of times it would be the name of the king that would be on the shield. So in the same way, when the devil sends his, his arrows of temptations, we were to hold up that shield bearing the name of our king, right? And who's our king? Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's through faith in His name, friends, that we can resist any enticement. And Paul gives us these words of promise. Sometimes they're taken out of context. But let's see, what what is it that Paul says? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that she may be able to bear it. I've seen some Christians, they, they've fallen for temptation and they've sinned and they've said, well, I got sin a temptation that I couldn't overcome. And they'll quote this scripture stunningly. So, but Paul says God's going to make a way of escape. You know, a way of escape in this verse literally means the way out. 
That's what it means, the way out. For every particular temptation, there is a particular provision made by God for escape. This way out is not to avoid the temptation, but it is the way out of falling into sin, of being overcome by the temptation. And since that's the case, God then, what happens, friends, is He uses these experiences to develop our character to be that uh, a character like His will, according to His will. And so when we're tempted, let's always remember that the temptation comes not because God sends it, but because He permits it. And He makes a way out for us. He makes a way for us to do His will regardless of the temptation. That's what Paul's saying. So let's not misunderstand what he's saying. Some people use it as an excuse. It's amazing to me. Sometimes what we as human beings will do with the Word of God to rationalize our sin. The fifth piece of armor Paul talked about is the helmet of salvation. And this again, I think he's pulling this from um, Isaiah. The helmet worn by Roman soldiers was made of metal. It was designed, of course, to protect the head, but also the face and the neck without blocking the vision of the soldier. Centurions and other officers wore crests on their helmets, you know, those plumes that they would have, or they'd have a row of something on top of their helmet, and, and that told them uh, their, their particular office and you know, whether they were centurion or higher up, the, the men could see that, they could follow them then into battle. It differentiated them, see. There are, actually, if you, you know, do a little search through your Bible, there are several Bible stories that stress the importance of protect, protecting the head while in battle. It's actually remarkable. For instance... You can read about this in Judges. King Abimelech. He died because he charged a city wall without first putting on his helmet. In Judges 9 verse 53 it says, A certain woman cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to break his skull. So he goes charging up against the wall. He doesn't have his helmet on. She throws a stone out of, you know, over the top of the wall and Hits him in the head, breaks his skull, kills him. Should have put on his helmet. I'll give you another instance. This time, he had a helmet, but he wore it improperly and it proved to be a fatal mistake to him. Remember the giant Goliath? He became outraged that young David would dare to come against him with nothing more than a shepherd's staff and a sling in his hand. Remember? What did Goliath do? His pride prompted him to carelessly push back his helmet and minutes later a smooth stone from David's sling had sunk deep into his forehead, killing him. So we not only have to put on the whole armor of God, but we got to wear it correctly, don't we? I'll tell you, friends, the purpose for this helmet of salvation is not only to keep out the rocks, but also to keep in the brains. Isn't that true? 
Your mind should not be open to anything and everything. And as we study and come to understand God's Word, there should be a settling into the truth that is revealed to us. Amen? Ephesians 4 and verse 14, Paul said, "...that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive." Your body has... Well, if you want to consider the eyes as an opening, but it, they are an opening in the sense of they're not holes, but they're an opening into the soul. Your body has seven openings from the neck up. Two nostrils... Two ears, two eyes, one mouth. So we must firmly strap the helmet of salvation in place and guard these avenues to the soul. Notice this from God's Amazing Grace, page 34. God bids us fill the mind with great thoughts, pure thoughts. He desires us to meditate upon His love and mercy, to study His wonderful work in the great plan of redemption. Then clearer and still clearer will be our perception of truth. Higher, holier, our desire for purity of heart and clearness of thought. The soul dwelling in the pure atmosphere of holy thought will be transformed by communion with God through the study of the scriptures. We need to guard those avenues of the soul. Satan, remember I said earlier in our, we began this study that this spiritual battle essentially is for our minds and hearts. Satan attacks us through our senses. He comes through these avenues. What we smell, what we hear, what we see, what we taste, what we say. Anything through here, see? We need to guard those avenues. And so we put on this helmet that helps us to guard those avenues. The sixth piece of armor. Yeah. The little Sabbath school song my wife's talking about. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Exactly. The sixth piece of armor that Paul mentions is the sword of the Spirit. Now, we really know what this is talking about, don't we, usually. What about the rest of the armor? Does anybody ever remember any of the other armor? We always remember the sword of the Spirit, right? Well, it was called a gladius, or a short sword. It had a, a double-edged blade. It was a very good stabbing weapon, close combat, hand-to-hand. The sword was the most common weapon in battle in the old days because... They didn't have things that fired from far away, except for arrows usually. So they had to battle hand-to-hand combat. You do a word search in the Bible, the King James Version, the word sword or swords appears 448 times in Scripture. That's remarkable. 448 times. Something to notice about this, and you're reading through Ephesians there, you notice that the other implements of armor in God's arsenal are defensive in nature? But the sword is primarily an offensive weapon. In fact, the sword of God's word is what Jesus used against the devil, isn't it? When Jesus said in Matthew 10 verse 34, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, 
He wasn't saying that he, the Prince of Peace, had come to start wars. Some people use it that way. It's ridiculous. But rather, he was pointing out that the sword of God's word has a dividing effect. Several times in the scriptures, the sword is depicted as having two edges. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Speaking of God's word as a sword, two-edged sword. Then again, Revelation 1.16, the Bible says, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. What is the significance of that? What does that mean? Well, the two edges of the spirit sword are the two witnesses of God's word. The New and Old Testaments. It's also called a two-edged sword because it is to be used both against the enemy and for personal use. Look at Acts 16. Let's look at an example here. Acts 16, verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Like that Philippian jailer there, friends, we must be ready to apply the sword of God's word to ourselves. Primarily it is to be used and applied to ourselves. A lot of times people use it to attack others. That's not how it's to be used. Ancient soldiers, they, they used their swords for almost anything. It was an incredible tool. They used it for cooking. They used it for... Uh, mending their other armor. They used it for splitting kindling for their fires. They used it for... Well, here's here's something. They used it for cutting the ropes that bound their captives to set them free. Just like the Word of God, spiritually. It's a practical tool for every area of life as well as in fighting the devil. And it sets us free. You know, in Bible times, there was no stainless steel. And an unused sword became rusty. It became dull. You, have you seen any... I've, looked, I've seen old metal, not even from clear back then. I've seen metal that has been pulled out of barns and stuff. You know, it's pitted, rusty. That's the way these swords would be if, if they didn't use them. Swords were kept clean by frequent use or by honing them against a stone or honing them against another friend's sword. Most people didn't know this, but Proverbs lays it out. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron. And that's what they would do. So, what spiritual example, what spiritual lesson can we learn from that? Well, when we study the Bible with others, our skill in the Word is sharpened, isn't it? Incredible lessons Paul's using here. I hope that uh, I hope that we're understanding this and and, and learning from it, digesting. digesting it. Yeah, very, very 
very nice what Paul's laying out here for us to learn. A soldier traveling in enemy territory never left his sword out of reach. That makes sense, doesn't it? In the same way, what should we do? What is our sword? It's the Bible, isn't it? We should be, as Peter says, ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15. Our Bible shouldn't be very far out of reach. Those scriptures should be in our minds. Well, the last of the armor is really an attitude. It wasn't a particular implement. Ephesians 6 and verse 18, Paul said, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You know, friends, any general knows that victory almost always depends upon which army has the element of surprise. In the story of Gideon, we've talked about before, we've studied, the soldiers were chosen based upon their watchfulness. Remember when they came to the river and they watched and spread them out? Separated the ones who lapped like a dog and the ones who didn't? And what they do? They caught the enemy sleeping and they won through surprise. And then, you know, you think about it, even the best armor is useless if the soldier is found asleep. So Paul, he's saying we are commanded to be watching thereunto with all perseverance. Matthew 26, 41. Jesus said, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Mark 13, 33. Take ye heed, watch and pray. For you know not when the time is. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. You getting the theme here? Then Peter says, 1 Peter 5 8. We've heard this before. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't sleep. When Paul says all prayer, essentially he's saying the same thing as he he had said before. Pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean, you know, and we talked about this the last time we were together, we talked about the the, principles of prayer. It doesn't mean we go about on our knees all day, you know. But essentially that we're constantly aware of God's presence and, and in tune with Him and what would Jesus have me to do? Understanding that we have an enemy stalking us. You remember the story of Nehemiah? In that story, God's people were under constant threat of attack. And I think we find a good example of this, watching thereunto with all perseverance. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 4, <clears throat> And verse 17 says, They which build it on the wall, remember Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls there in Jerusalem, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand he held what? A weapon. For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. Well, those workers were always watching for the enemy, and they were armed. They were ready. 
for any assault even while they were hard at work rebuilding those walls. We need to have the Bible ready always, friends, that sword of the Spirit. In his lesson to the Ephesians, Paul urges us three times to stand with this armor. And really, friends, an armor is an excuse me, an army is um, it's no better than its discipline. Without any discipline, they're doomed, really. It is time that we, as God's soldiers, stop simply discussing his commands and begin obeying them. Wouldn't you agree? Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Right? We need to stand with the whole armor of God. One of King David's mighty men was named Eleazar. You know, he became famous because when the army of Israel retreated and fled from the enemy, he stood his ground right next to King David's side. And the two of them fought back to back until they had defeated the Philistines. And I want to encourage you, friends, because exercising faith gives you victory over the enemy. Stand your ground with the whole armor of God. I'll close with this. I remember watching a documentary. I'm really, I really enjoy history. I never did in school much, but I really do now and have for many years. I remember watching a documentary on the Civil War, and it showed how during a fierce battle, one northern company was fighting under a hail of bullets to take a strategic hill from the south. And after making progress halfway up the hill, the weary soldiers became discouraged by the constant barrage and they began to retreat back down the hill. Then they noticed that their standard bearer, that's the one who carried their company flag, refused to fall back. You know, it was a standard bearer's job to hold the flag over the territory that was occupied by his army. Bring the standard down to us, shouted his company. But despite the fact that cannons were exploding all around him, this courageous soldier was unwilling to yield an inch. And you know what he did? He hollered back, No, you come up to where the standard is. And inspired by his bravery, the north renewed their efforts and they took that hill. And so, friends, the spiritual lesson here, when everyone else retreats, we must hold the line. If you were baptized, you made a promise to God. you know that? You made a covenant with Him. And the force of that commitment has not diminished at all, nor will it ever. When you enlisted in God's army, you promised to work in and attend the church. You promised to return tithe and offerings. You promised to follow biblical principles, to dress modestly, to eat and drink to the glory of God, to care for your body temple, to share the gospel. You promised to do that. God calls us, friends, to be extraordinary and different. 
you've been tempted to retreat, turn around. Come back up to His standard. I want to assure you, friends, that although we are in a war, we need not fear. God's Word tells us how the battle will end. He tells us who will be the victor. The God who provides our battle armor, our powered armor, guarantees His armor's his army's victory. And as he says, and Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So how can we stand? How can we fight? Paul gives us the answer in the beginning of our passage. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Jesus said in John 15, 5, Without me you can do nothing. But we're assured in Philippians 4, 13 that we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. Friends, I want to tell you, all that we need was purchased at Calvary with the blood of God's own Son. Do you believe that? And just as Jonathan so loved David that he gave him his armor, Gave him his sword, his robe, his very throne. So Jesus gives us all we need to be assured of total and final victory. You see, he provides us with powered armor. We just need to put it on. As Paul says, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Friends, let's put on the whole armor of God and let's make a stand. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this, this incredible lesson that you've laid out in your holy word. And... We thank you so much for providing the armor that is needed for our battle with the enemy. Lord, I pray for those who, who are in the valley of decision right now, those who are unsure, those who are doubting. I pray that you strengthen them and that they can see that they can trust you fully. And I pray that they understand that they, they have armor that they can wear. They have a powered armor that the devil cannot overcome. I pray that your people will learn the lessons that are given and that they will fight to battle with the whole armor that is provided. Please continue to be with us, Father, in this holy Sabbath day and the coming days ahead that we may gain a peace and a strength, wear the armor and make the stand that you ask us to make. I pray in Jesus' name.